I had, uh, I had never heard a story like Cindy's before. I'd, I'd heard a lot of testimonies about how people came to know Jesus, but I'd, I'd never heard one like, like hers. Whenever she shared it, she said that she was, she was raised in, in a home that uh, her parents, they read the Bible and they prayed together and they, they sang songs together. She said that she was, she was christened uh, when she was born and that she, she doesn't think that she had missed a day of church since that day. She even remembers when she was young in uh, Sunday school class that there was, a, there was a piece of poster board and all the names of the children were in there and next to her name was the longest line of lamb stickers for all of the verses that she had memorized and how she had dusted all of her, her cl- other classmates. Uh, Cindy knew the rules, and she politely kept them. She had never said a curse word. She never watched a PG-13 movie. She never wore a short skirt. She never told dirty jokes. She said she'd never kissed a boy. And as far as everyone could see, Cindy had it all together. But on that night, when she, she shared her story with us, she, she talked about the fact that That even though she knew the rules and kept the rules and on the outside looked pristine, that God was showing her something about her heart, that her heart was not pure. She said that that one day when she was at school that that, that the girls would would walk by and, and she would judge them and think, there go the whores. And then the boys would walk by and she would think, oh, there go there go the perverts. And she would scorn people under her breath for, for what they, they wore. And she, could, she said she could feel herself rolling her eyes at people and putting her nose up at them in, in, in prideful snobbery. And she said what was weird about it was that she always had that kind of attitude, but on that day, for some reason, she began to feel really uncomfortable about it. That as she was judging others and looking down on them and picking out all the things that were wrong in her life, it was as if God was all of a sudden beginning to lift her eyes to see that though she might not be doing the exact same things that they were doing, that she was no different than them. She said it was as if all of the Bible verses that she had put to memory all of a sudden began to cry out as witnesses against her, condemning her before the God that she, she thought that she knew, showing her that she, her pride was keeping her from loving other people, and her pride was keeping her from trusting in Christ as her righteousness. And she began to see in that moment in the hallway the murder in her heart, and the lust in her heart, and the jealousy, and the envy, and the covetousness, and that all, until that time, it had, it had just always been dressed up as, as morality, and and, and kind of just knowing the right answers and seeing how everybody else was doing it wrong. But, but right then, she felt exposed. And she felt convicted. And she knew that she had no excuse before God. She said that she was a self-righteous hypocrite. And she was condemned. Self-righteous hypocrisy is a deadly spiritual disease because on the outside it looks real good and 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 oftentimes our heart gets so hard in it that we're just blind to the reality that that we too have our many sins and as we're going to see this morning 
that knowing the right answers and being able to pick out where everybody else is wrong and doing religious activities, that none of those things excuse us from the judgment before God, but actually they condemn us all the more if they don't lead us to repentance in Christ. This morning we're going to hear about hard words for hypocrites. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask that you would join me in the book of Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. If you didn't bring a Bible this morning, there's some Bibles provided uh, for you right there in, your, in the pew in front of you. We'll be on page 940, and it'll help you because we're kind of just going to go verse by verse, line by line, all the way through, through this chapter and talk about it together. So that's Romans chapter 2, and it's on page 940 in, in the Bibles that are provided. As you get in there, I want to remind you that last week we saw the beginning of a section that reveals our need for, for the gospel. We were told in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1 that the gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. And that in the gospel, God is revealing his perfect righteousness and also his provision of perfect righteousness in Christ that we receive by by faith alone. And we said that was really good news. And the reason is because God is also revealing something else. We saw in chapter 1, verse 18, that that God is revealing his wrath. Verse 18 of chapter 1, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That it's good news that the gospel's going out and being revealed from heaven, telling us about uh, how to to be righteous in, uh, in Christ, dressed in his righteousness, because... The gospel also exposes our unrighteousness, that we're sinners against our maker, and that that in creation God has revealed himself, but that that the Gentile nations have have rejected God and replaced him with with idols, and that they are condemned without excuse. We saw last week that God, God says to those who do that the scariest thing that he can say, which is, thy will be done. You want to believe lies? Have it your way. You want the pain that comes with perversion? Go right ahead. You want idols? Have your idols. And then Paul concluded that that condemnation of the Gentile world in chapter 1, verse 28 and following. If you'll look there, he says, Since they didn't see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy and murder and strife and deceit and maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And you've got to know that as, as Paul is, is preaching that message, that there's, there's a group of people who are right up front who are nodding along and they're tapping their toes and they're saying amen preach it brother I'm really hoping that this person's here in that sermon or that person's here in that sermon because that sermon's right for them get them Paul sick them tell them tell those perverts get those Gentiles right tell them truth fix those dirty people But as those people smugly sit there and judge the Gentiles for all of their rebellions, they're unaware that not all is well 
between them and God. We mentioned in last week that chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through 320 is a sweeping condemnation of all people. And last week, God focused in on the Gentiles, those who do not have a special revelation like the Bible or, or the revelation of Christ, but, but through creation and conscience um, know about God and that they are condemned because they reject God. But now in chapter 2, Paul's going to go after that crew. The crew of the self-righteous, the hypocrite who nods and points out where everybody else is wrong and he's like, whoa, hold up, buddy. You too are condemned. You do not escape the judgment just because you know a lot and you can find faults in everybody else and because you do religious activities. That saves no one. In fact, it condemns you all the more. And the problem, as we'll see, is that that these Jews, they thought that they were better off because they knew the truth, and they did these activities, just as some of us who were raised in the church and around the church and who know the Bible, maybe inside and outside, might be tempted to think that we get a pass. But God has harsh words for people who rest their hope in their own righteousness. And what we're going to do this morning is we're going to see four statements that he's going to make Four hard words for hypocrites like us. The first one's not super long. The second one's really long. The third one's shorter than the first one. And the last one's really short, but supremely important, okay? So when you're in the middle of number two and you're thinking, oh my, it's designed like that. But hang in, okay? So four statements, four hard words to to hypocrites. Number one, self-righteous people face God's judgment. Self-righteous people face God's judgment. Let's look at verses one through five. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, Practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So the focus of the the text changes from condemning the heathen Gentile to now condemning the hypocritical Jew. And do do you notice a word that was repeated seven times in those five verses? It's the word judge. You see the word judge or judgment show up seven times. And the reason is because that's, the, that's one of the marks of a self-righteous hypocrite. That we, we tend to be judges of other people. We have an eye for other people's sins, but we are blind to the severity of our own. We're like the Pharisees in Luke chapter 18 who, 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 who is standing by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men the unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. You ever done that in church? 
I hope this person's listening. Rather than saying, Lord, what do I need to hear? Because we who are like this, we, we know truth and we love truth, but our, our judging others is dangerous because verse 1 tells us that in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. He says, you seem to be pretty good at, at finding the shortcomings in others, but are blind to the fact that you practice the same things. Now, granted, you may not sin to the degree and in the exact way that other people do, but we are not innocent. None of us. And that's what happened to Cindy, the girl who shared her her testimony. She began to see that she was no different than the people that she was condemning, ultimately, because she had been comparing them to herself rather than comparing to the holy God. And, And while it's true that there are some sins that are worse than others, so it's worse to murder than to be angry, But Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount that being angry condemns us before God just as murder does. Why? Because God sees the heart and he judges our heart. So he says, you you judge people for being perverts? Well, have you ever lusted? You, You judge people for being materialistic? Have you ever coveted something that you didn't have? You, you judge prideful people for their self-promotion? Have you, ever, have you ever done anything to be seen by others? Have you ever even done that in church? That you're like, man, I wish these jokers would worship. So you put your hands up because you want to set the precedent that this is how you worship. Or you want to say, all these people trying to be showy, I'll show them. And you put your hands in your pockets and protest. And say, I, ain't, I ain't worshiping nothing like that. You ever done that kind of stuff before? When I, was in, when I became a Christian, I got a brand new Bible, and I started, started reading it and started marking in it. And I remember a couple times taking the Bible and bending it and, and messing with it and trying to do this and, like, highlighting, like, whole pages. And then when I was at seminary, I would open it up and kind of lean back and just hope that everybody would gaze upon the Bible and think, oh, my Look at that guy. He must be amazing. I'm sure none of you have ever done anything like that. But we do, don't we? We, we all have self-righteousness in us. And some of y'all are judging me, and watch out, this verse right here. That's y'all. Watch out. I'm not kidding, okay? It's in all of us, right? Whether you're, whether you're a Jew, or you're a Baptist, or you're a Catholic or you're a moral agnostic, it's in us. It's it's, it's there. And verse 2 says, God's judgment rightly falls on us for it. And it says that his judgment is according to truth. Because God, and I hear this, because God is just, he will only judge people who have no excuse. So if you've got no excuse before God, you're fine. You don't need Jesus. You're perfect. None of us. None of us are without excuse. Chapter 1, verse 20, the Gentiles, they are without excuse. And chapter 2, verse 1 says, those who know stuff are without excuse. And it's evidenced by the fact that we condemn and we judge others. And verse 11 tells us that that with God, he shows no partiality in his judgment. What that means is that God's got no favorites. 
He doesn't give special treatment. He can't be bought. He can't be bribed. He's no respecter of persons. There is no escape from his judgment. We are all without excuse before him. But, but God hasn't judged us yet. Right now, in this room, there are some of us who are enslaved in our self-righteousness and think that because of all the things that we've done and all the stuff that we know, and that we're, we're good with God, and, and God has not incinerated us yet. Why? Because he's being patient and merciful. And, and that should affect us. But for some of us, it hasn't. And he asks this question in verse 4. Do you, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? The word for presume means to despise something, to look down on it as, as worthless. And this is the question that God poses to the self-righteous. Do you, do you look lightly upon his mercy? That up to this, this moment, his waves of mercy have been lapping upon the shore of our lives. Mercy after mercy, mercy after mercy, kindness after kindness after kindness. Each wave sent by his patient and forbearing hand upon we who are unworthy. And if God were only just, the first time we sinned, he would have consumed us in judgment because of his perfect justice. But, but because he is also merciful, he postpones judgment day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, for some of us, decade after decade. He is rich in mercy and he lavishly spends it on sinners. Why? Because it's meant to lead us to repentance. Think about that. That it is the kindness of God that we are alive and here this morning. Right now, we're, we're being given time. Time to hear his word. Time to, to repent. Time to believe. This, this verse right here, verse 4, was one of the ones that struck me as, as a non-believer when I finally began to read the Bible. I saw that I was presuming upon His mercy. When I read verse 5, that, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's judgment will be revealed. I saw that, and it terrified me. I was ignoring His mercy. And I, who was all kinds of messed up, infinitely worse on the outside than Cindy was, I still had my own self-righteousness, thinking, well, I'm not as bad as others. And some of us have presumed upon God's mercy and supposed that because he hasn't judged us yet, that he won't judge us. We've mistaken his mercy for a pass. And that's a grave error. His patience is intended to lead us to repentance, not to more rebellion. And every day that we blow off mercy, the text says in verse 5 that we store up wrath. That, now listen, what that means is that right now, 
you are apart from Christ, you are accruing an eternal interest of wrath that is compiling every moment that you're alive. The wrath is stacking up every white lie, every selfish motive, every lustful look, every hateful thought, every slanderous word, every judgment you make on others. You're stacking up sins like firewood that will one day be evidence against you and fuel for the eternal fiery wrath of God. I don't say that to just scare you, but that, that's what it says in verse 5. And that should humble us. If you have not trusted in Christ, please hear me, that right now is a moment of mercy. The scriptures say, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts against Him. If you hear His voice, today is the day of salvation. Christ was judged on the cross and there He took all of the, all of the wrath that we deserved upon Himself for any and all who will ever turn from their sins and trust in Christ. He became an object of wrath that we might be vessels of mercy. If you hear His voice, do not harden your heart, but come unto Christ and believe. And the Jews and all self-righteous people who, who knew the truth needed to hear this because they were, they were condemned. And in judging others, it was made all the more clear that hypocrites are not exempt from God's judgment. And Paul fleshes that out in our second hard truth for hypocrites. Number two, that right answers don't save us from God's judgment. Right answers don't save us from God's judgment. Look at verse 6 down through 16. It says, He, meaning God, will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also to the Greek, for God shows no partiality. And in these verses, right here, we're going to pause there, we're going to pick up more in just a second, but in here, there's, there's, three, there's three important realities about God's judgment that we need to see. Number one, is that there are two very clear and distinct destinies that lay before every person. There are two very clear and distinct destinies that lay before every person. There's a path, verse 7, that leads to eternal life, and there's a path, verse 8, that leads to wrath and fury. There is either eternal joy with God under his banner of love or eternal misery apart from God under his relentless wrath. There are only two options. There are no others. Everyone in this room, everyone listening to this sermon will end up in one of those two places, either heaven with God or hell apart from God in his wrath. The second thing that we need to, to notice here is that God shows no partiality in assigning people to either heaven or hell. God shows no partiality in his assigning people to, to either heaven or hell. In verse 11 it says, God shows no partiality in his judgment. 
We also see in verse 9 that heaven is given to the Jew first and then to the, the Greek or the Gentile. And in verse, seven that, or verse 10, that, that hell is given to the Jew first and then to the Greek. Meaning that because the Jews had the Pentateuch, the law, and the promises and the prophets, that they were they're in first in line to receive and hear the gospel, which is we see that in Jesus' ministry, go to the Jews first. Same thing with Paul's ministry, goes to the Jews first. And in the same way, on that final day of judgment, the Jews will be, because they know the most, they will be judged first and rewarded first or condemned first. But in the end, everybody's judged. God shows no partiality in his judgment. And then the third thing that we need to notice is that God God will judge people according to their works. God will judge people according to their works. We're going to spend a couple extra minutes on this part. And it's, it's really important that we tune in for what we're talking about here. Uh, this is a challenging text. Uh, there's some discussion on a couple ways that it can be interpreted. I highly commend to you John Piper's, he has two sermons on this section. It helped me a lot um, and clarified some things for me. But, but there's, there's a really important question that we must ask and we answer when we look at the verses that we just read in, in verses 6 down through 16 and, and some of the verses that, that will follow. The question is this. How, how do we understand this text? Because there's two options. Option one is this. When, when God says there in, in verse 6 that he will render each one according to his works, and then goes on to describe that, it can either mean, number one, that judgment according to works is... It's a hypothetical idea given to show that no one can really do it. Therefore, everybody needs the gospel. Judgment according to works is a hypothetical idea given to show that no one can really do it. Therefore, everyone needs the gospel. So we'd read verse 7 like this. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. Meaning, God would give eternal life if they could live that way, but since they can't, They need the gospel of grace to save them. So that's one option. And I think that's true. I think that's a true statement. I go with the second interpretation, though. Number two, the judgment according to works is how it's really going to be. And and this text is just speaking plainly. It's saying that the pathway to heaven is, you're going to have to tune in, please, is marked by obedience to God, and the pathway to hell is marked by disobedience to God. Now, I believe the first option is true. Again, I want to say that. That no one in their natural state always persists in patiently doing good and seeking to give God glory and honor and immortality. Nobody does that. All people can do good things, But those things are all tainted with sin, and no one can earn eternal life by being good enough. Hear that. No one earns eternal life by being good enough. We are not saved because of our obedience. God has never and never will teach that good deeds earn anyone eternal life. But God has always and always will teach that good deeds are a necessary proof of a life of faith that unites to Jesus who is our righteousness. So when we read verse 6 that he will render to each person according to their works, that should, for a non-Christian, 
someone who's not trusting in Christ as their righteousness, that should absolutely terrify you. That one day, everything that you have ever said, everything that you've ever thought, everything that you ever tried to do, everything that you have done, will be on full display before a holy God, and He will give you what you deserve, which is wrath and fury and tribulation and distress, like the text says. But for the Christian who sees that verse... We see it in both a similar way and also in a different way. As a Christian, we see this verse and, and are humble. So we, we hear that, and, and a verse like that, acts, it acts like a drain to suck all self-righteousness right out of us. We hear that you're going to be judged according to your works. That, that, hum, that should humble a Christian Because we could never be justified by our good works before God. But at the same time, we see a verse like that and it gives hope because we know that our lives are marked by good works. Why? Because Christ has given us new life in him. When God opened our eyes to believe the gospel, it was grace. And we were born again by grace. Nothing we could do. And through faith, we were united to Christ and clothed in his righteousness and justified before God simply because of what Christ has done on our behalf. But that's not all that happened. He also gave us his Holy Spirit, who now produces the life of Christ in us and through us. So that when you come to Romans chapter 6, you're dead to sin and you're alive to God. And we've got to think that way. And when you come to chapter 7, you, you hate the sin that you do, which is only evidence that God's alive, that you used to run to sin, and now you hate it when it's happening. And then chapter 8, it says that now, by the Spirit, we fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. You do what God wants you to do by the power of the Spirit, which is grace that comes because you're united to Christ. And that kind of life produces, chapter 12 through 15, a life that is worship. That we love and we live for the glory of God. And all of that, that living, that fruit that comes out of the life that is Christ is evidence on that last day that we are his. It's proof that we have been, been born again. It's the kind of fruit that a life of faith possesses. A life where good works abound, the book of Titus a life marked by love and obedience, 1 John. And it's the fruit that that is evidence that we are rooted in Christ. Now, now what that doesn't mean is that when you become a Christian, you're perfect. That's not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying, though, is your life looks different. And on that last day, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 says that when we are judged, that whatever is not done for Christ will be burned away as dross, and that whatever remains that is done for Christ by the power of the Spirit for the glory of God, that will be evidence that we are His. And that will be, that will be an offering unto Him. And that because we are in Christ, those works will stand that we are His. That is no contradiction to the gospel of free and sovereign grace. We are saved by grace through faith alone. But, Martin Luther said, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. That just echoes Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And that, your faith, and I mean, everything, 
It's a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. Look at all my works, God, that I did. Now, there's no boasting on that last day. We're saved by grace. Then verse 10 says, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he created beforehand that we would walk in them. And us walking in them and living them out is evidence that we are indeed his. Now, I know I spent a lot of time on that, but it's really important. So, God will render to each person according to their works. And if your life is characterized, verse 8, by self-seeking and not obeying the truth, but obeying unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. But if you are in Christ, your life will be characterized by, verse 7, patience and well-doing, and verse 10, doing good, resulting in eternal life. How we live reflects who we truly are. I don't know that I'll get to it later, so I'm going to go ahead and say this now, that motives are really important. So Cindy, at the beginning, she would have looked like a believer, but her heart was all about stacking up and hanging up trophies on the wall for her own righteousness. It's by her own self-admission. And she was trusting in all those things to make her right before God, rather than trusting in Christ alone. And that's, that's why we've got to understand that knowing right answers does not excuse us from the judgment of God. God requires obedience to his word. Christians have to obey. And I don't, I don't know what it is, but there's something about us who love grace, who oftentimes get freaked out when we say you need to obey Jesus. But like, it's just in the Bible everywhere. Just read it, you'll see it. It's everywhere. We obey Jesus. He is our Lord, our King, our Master. So God requires obedience to his word. So having right answers doesn't save us. Now look down at verse 12 through 16. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires... They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. How? Well, verse 15, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse them or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So, are all people judged according to their works? Yes, everyone is judged according to their works. We're not saved by our works, but we're judged according to our works. So, so what about the person who doesn't have the law? What, what about the person in Africa or in the Amazon who has never heard? Are they exempt from the judgment? No. They, too, like everyone else, will be judged according to their works. Well, by what standard? Verse 14 and 15 says that their conscience becomes the law for them. In chapter 1, we saw the creation was general revelation available to all, and here conscience is as well. So, for instance, a headhunter in the Congo who's never heard boo about Jesus knows that he doesn't like his head hunted. And he knows he doesn't like it when someone steals from his hut. And he knows he doesn't like it when somebody comes to hunt his sister's head. He knows it. Why? Because there is general revelation to everybody in our, in our conscience that, that, that illumines us to the fact that there is right and wrong and that that is the fingerprint of our maker. 
And on that day of judgment, their conscience will stand as both their prosecutor and their defender. So, hypothetically, before the the judgment seat, Mr. Headhunter's here, and 100 times he was tempted to slander, but his conscience smote him by the common grace of God, and he knew that he wouldn't want someone to slander him, so he refrained and held his tongue, excused on this, as it were. But 100,000 times he gave in, and he slandered. And he's condemned. And before God, one. Because he is holy and just, God winks at no sin. He overlooks no sin. So revelation in creation and revelation through conscience condemn all. Same would be for him with lust and anger and everything else. There will be things he obeyed in his conscience and there will be things that he didn't and he will be condemned because verse 16 On that day, his secrets will be judged according to the gospel by Jesus himself, and he will be condemned because he didn't obey. Right along with the Jew who didn't obey what he knew, and right along with the seminary student who didn't obey what he knew, and right along with countless pastors who knew but didn't obey, and countless people who were baptized or members of churches who knew didn't obey and that's the point that having the answers and commands doesn't save us on the day of judgment that God wants obedience verse 17 through 24 he's going to keep going on this idea but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you're instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind and a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having the law, the embodiment of knowledge and truth, which that was all things the Jews would say. That's us. We know the truth. We have the truth. We can see where everybody's wrong. Verse 21. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. These Jews thought that because they were Jewish and had God's word and knew the commands that they didn't need to fear the judgment. But God does not care about your heritage. That excuses nobody. God the Father has no grandchildren. He has no grandchildren. He only has children who are born again through faith in Christ alone. He doesn't care who your mother was or your father or your brother or auntie or grandma or cousin or any of that. He doesn't give you a pass because of your heritage or because your family built a church or because your parents were missionaries. No one gets a pass for that. Now, is there advantage to being raised in a godly, gospel-centered, Christ-loving home. Is there advantage to that? You bet there is. We'll see that next week in chapter 3. He says, you bet there's an advantage, but just because there's an advantage doesn't mean you're better off. Because you can have, as it were, the best quarterback in the whole league, but if he's on the bench and you're not using him, it's no advantage. Same kind of idea that, that if you know the truth and have godly people around you, but it doesn't, it doesn't lead you to 
to repent of your sin and to trust in Christ, then it becomes as no advantage to you. God requires a life of resulting in obedience, not just knowledge. Verse 21, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? He says, you seem to know the Bible, and you seem to be able to point out where others fall short, but, but how about yourselves? Do you take the log out of your own eye, as Jesus told us to in Matthew 7, before we judge others? He says, verse 21, you who preach against stealing, do you steal? Some did. You say that one must not commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? He may have had the, you know, with their divorce laws, the wife swapping in his mind. You who abhor idols, do you, do you rob temples? I don't know what that means, but the point is they weren't practicing what they preached. In verse 23, he says, you who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. You strut around like you're super spiritual because of who you are and what you know, but your hypocrisy has confused people about who God is. The Gentiles, they may have rejected and replaced God, but you have remade and redefined God. You have made him out to be somebody that he is not. You've misrepresented him, and the result, verse 24, is grievous. The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. The Jews were supposed to be a billboard displaying who God was to the nations, but they defaced his image and they defamed his reputation. God was mocked and he was dismissed in part because of them. So let us hear this. What we believe is of great importance, but that we live in light of what we believe is equally important. What we believe is of great importance, but that we live in light of what we believe is equally important. We must not be a people only of doctrine and truth, but we must be a people who live out our doctrine and truth. So I was, I was thinking, I, I wonder, in that list of 21 and, and following there where he asks those questions, I wonder what kind of questions God might ask to us. To some of us, he might ask, do you help others by giving them counsel for their lives? Do you, do you speak truth to them and challenge them to live for Christ? Do you help them to see areas that maybe they need to be shored up in? Do you do that? That's good if you do. That's a mark of love. But do you ever seek counsel? Do, do you open your life to other people? Do, do you openly confess deeply and honestly your sins? Do, do you invite people in to speak candidly to you? Do they have freedom to walk around in your heart and ask you anything to which you would respond honestly? Or, or are you too proud? Some of us nod our heads at the idea of people needing correction and challenge, but when it comes to our lives, we're closed off and we don't let people in. And I'm not talking about being introverted or extroverted here. I'm not saying you need to let everybody in. Proverbs says that's a foolish thing to do. But I'm talking about humility. Biblical humility where you recognize that you need other people up in your business. You need that. So just transparent, my wife's out of town for a few days. So I have emailed my plan to honor my wife and God and this church to David Verhey and Shailen, and they have free reign to ask me anything. 
I need that. I need that kind of, I need people like that in my life. And what happens when, when we don't, and I'm holding myself up as an example, okay, in the sense of like, hey, look at me, I'm doing it right. But, but, but what I'm saying is that, that if we don't have people in our lives, what will happen is that we will begin to deceive ourselves and we will begin to become blind to areas in our lives. And those sins will misrepresent who God is and that his name could be mocked and blasphemed among the Gentiles because of us. We could become hypocrites. Or to some of us, the Lord might ask, do you champion doctrine and truth? Do you have your creeds and your doctrinal statements and your Bible studies and your gospel-centered everything? And I trust that that God would say it's it's a good thing that you have those, that you teach and uphold the truth that God has given you. He would say that my truth is the hope for my people. But in your championing of the scriptures, do you ignore the hundreds of references that call you to extend practical mercy to the needy and to the oppressed? When was the last time you got your hands dirty serving someone who couldn't pay you back? think that in our theological circles, we, want to, we become so focused on not being social gospel that we've neglected, we've neglected very, very clear precedent in God's word that we, as God's people, are to care for the lowly and the oppressed. And I, I say this to my own shame. I think this is something that I need to do better and that we as a church need to do better. We must be a people who not only preach about mercy, but who practically show that mercy to those who are in need. One last example. For we who would consider ourselves theologically conservative and love righteousness, the Lord might say to us, do you teach against homosexuality? Do you stand against gay marriage? Good. You should, because it it is a sin before God. But, do you extend the same, the same kind of love and tenderness and compassion to homosexuals as you would to other people? To homosexuals in in your family, or in your neighborhood, or your workplace, do they know that you are a Christian, and they know that you would disagree about their perception of, of sexuality and what is right and what is wrong, but that, that they can't get over the fact that you just, you love them and are kind to them and show them mercy? Are they baffled by you? I would say this is an area that the church at large has done very poorly in. It's easy for us to judge people who may struggle with things that we may not. But do you love people who struggle with sins that you don't? Will you, will you love our church members who struggle with same-sex attraction? It's easy to preach about love. But do we strive in the Spirit to live as we preach? If you're a Christian, do not become hypocritical and harden your heart against certain commands in God's Word. We have no right to pick and choose what we obey. And when we do, his name could be blasphemed because of us. 
May God protect this church from that kind of posture. May we be a people who rightly preach and rightly live the gospel. Faith in Christ alone saves you because it produces in you a life that is pleasing to God. But that kind of life isn't just filled with right answers or, thirdly and briefly, religious activities. Number three, religious activities don't save us from God's judgment. So just as right answers don't, religious activities don't save us from God's judgment. Verse 25 through 29. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? But then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have written the written code and circumcision, but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. Now we'll talk more about why circumcision was such a big deal to the Jews when we get to chapter 4. But for now, we've got to know that for the Jew, circumcision was the external symbol for their faith. God had promised Abraham that through his descendants would come one who would bless the whole world. And he commanded Abraham and every male Jew who would follow him to be circumcised as an external physical mark to remind them that through the Jew would come a savior for the world. And what happened was that over time, Jewish people made the external symbol of circumcision some kind of badge of righteousness. That if you had that, you were good. If you were, you were a woman and your dad had that, you were under his covering, you were good. That, 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 became, that became the badge of why, why are you going to be right with God? Well, because we, we do this religious activity. And Paul says, listen, just because you are outwardly and physically circumcised, that doesn't mean anything if your heart is not circumcised. That your heart by the Spirit has been changed. That the old has been taken away and that, that now you are live unto God. In fact, if there's someone who doesn't have the external symbol, but has faith that produces works, he will be pleasing to God. Religious activity by itself does not, does not make you good with God. Now, this is important in our context as well, okay, because that's, that's, that's not the major topic that we normally think about, but for us, in our context, we've got to know that just because you've been baptized or you take the Lord's Supper, or you have perfect church attendance, or you have your name on a membership roll, or you give money to missions, or whatever it is, that, that just because you have that ultimately doesn't mean anything. Spiritually dead people can do all kinds of religious activities. God says that all of those activities mean nothing if your life isn't marked by repentance and faith in Christ that produces good works. He says it means absolutely nothing. So here in just one moment, Amanda Young is going to come up and be baptized. And we are, we are excited about that. And she's going to share her testimony and talk about what God did in her life. And we're going to celebrate and rejoice. Praise be to God for his work. And praise be to God that she's going to be baptized. An external symbol of the, the, the spiritual reality that has happened in her heart. It's a good thing. But I want to be really clear 
that you, you can go to heaven without being baptized. You can go to heaven without taking the Lord's Supper. You can go to heaven without being a member of a church. And you can go to hell having been baptized. And you can go to hell having taken the Lord's Supper and being a member in good standing at a local church. Our righteous activities, our religious activities, have zero impact on our justification before God. We are saved by faith alone in Christ alone. Now, somebody who loves Jesus should do exactly what a man is going to do. She said, I, I love Jesus. I want to tell the world. Good. So there should be religious activities that we do. Religion is not a bad thing. Christians are religious people. You're here doing a religious stuff right now. This is good stuff to do. But this does not make us right with God. Faith alone in Christ alone does that, which leads us to our final and brief but utmost important point is that number four, righteous people, righteous people will find hope in God's praise. Righteous people will find hope in God's praise. Verse 29 the end of this is that his praise is not from man but from God. His praise is not from man but from God. Speaking about this person whose heart has been circumcised by the Spirit of God because of faith in Christ. And that's what this whole book of Romans leads us to. That, that, that on that last day when we stand in the judgment, that we will not be accepted or embraced because of anything that we have done but solely because of Christ. And then what that does is that, that makes us right with the Lord. So do you, do you remember when, when Jesus, right at his baptism, the Father said from heaven, and Mark Butman preached a great sermon on this a couple, couple of months ago, that the Father said, Behold, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Well, what becomes true of the Christian, that, that if by faith we turn from our sins, trust in Christ, we are justified, clothed in his righteousness, and we are in Christ by the Spirit, that now the Father looks on us who are in Christ and says, Behold, my son, behold, my daughter, in whom I am well pleased. And our praise comes from God, not from men. Not because of how much we know or how we can point out where everybody else is wrong or all of our religious activities to which people applaud. He says, no, we live for the applause of one. And that is the God the Father. We are right with him solely through Christ and Christ alone. Where he forgives our sins and cleanses our sin and reconciles and circumcises our heart by his spirit which results in a life lived for his glory that is marked by good works on that last day when he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. So, self-righteous people face God's judgment. Righteous answers don't save us from God's judgment. Religious activities don't save us from God's judgment. But righteous people will find hope in God's praise, which comes only through faith in Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would use your word this morning to expose in us things that, that, need, that need to be changed. God, if we are disillusioned about our real standing with you, we pray that you would awaken us, that you would show us our sin, and that you would draw us unto Christ. Father, if we are resting our life on how much better we are than other people, or how much we know, or what all we've done, God, put that to death. But God, circumcise our hearts through the Spirit that we might be made alive 
in Christ. Father, we praise you for the gospel that is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. God, we praise you for the righteousness that is given to those who will trust. God, make us a people who trust in Christ alone. In his name we pray.